This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, the place where tech workers come to get smarter about their money. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to take you beneath the surface level and cover traditional personal finance topics in a way that is both approachable and relatable, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners, Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about fintech. More specifically, we're talking about the long-term impacts of diversity on financial services and the fintech industry. The fintech sector is responsible for the rapid transformation and digitization of financial tools that help consumers intelligently manage and understand their money. Making an incredibly positive impact, financial services companies distance consumers from the legacy banking system and provide access to historically underrepresented communities. Despite this progress, it is a well-known fact that a disproportionate number of entrepreneurs and decision-makers within fintech do not adequately reflect their consumer base. In light of this, there are calls for diversifying all levels of the industry to build a more inclusive financial system. When financial service products are developed through a narrow lens of beliefs, experiences, and assumptions, underbanked or marginalized communities may be affected in unintentional ways. Alternatively, financial tools built with a broader lens adequately predict these impacts and may ultimately translate to a stronger bottom line. Tech workers of today have a unique opportunity to rewrite a stained past of discriminatory financial practices by designing and marketing the inclusive financial tools of tomorrow. The diversification of perspectives within the fintech community will provide immense benefit to U.S. consumers, as well as increase the marketability to a global audience. Today's guest, Drew Glover, is a founding partner at Fiat Growth, a strategic marketing shop working with some of the largest fintech, insurtech, and rewards brands such as Chime, Lemonade, and The Motley Fool. With a vision to scale products accessible to all, Fiat Growth aligns the most impactful companies to collaborate and empower the global consumer, regardless of socioeconomic status. Drew focuses on providing growth, mentorship, and venture capital to startups that help streamline and diversify the fintech acquisition funnel. He believes that everybody deserves access to financial tools that build wealth and simplify life. So with that brief introduction, welcome Drew Glover to the Tech Money Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. I appreciate you making the time to be here. I breezed through your resume pretty quickly in my intro. What else should I have included? You know, I think one of the bigger things is 
my path into venture capital is very untraditional. Didn't work in a VC firm for 10 plus years to then like build up the accolades and the merit to found Fiat Ventures. I really had this opportunity to found Fiat Growth, which is our growth consultancy. Mm -hmm. It's a sister company to Fiat Ventures. But early on, as we were working with fintech companies, we would help them scale both from a strategic and like an executionable context. But at the same time, we asked for the right to invest in all the companies we worked with. So, you know, we've been around for five plus years, worked with over a hundred companies. We asked for the right to invest in all these businesses. We were helping grow from a performance marketing standpoint. And that gave us the ability to ultimately found Fiat Ventures, which is our venture fund. That's a $25 million venture fund where we get to invest in early stage businesses called like pre-series A. Mm -hmm. And with a hyper focus on financial technology companies that are helping lower the access barrier for call it the 80% of America that historically didn't have financial products built for them. Mm. Yeah. As you mentioned that $25 million venture fund, I actually, you know, in preparing for the episode read that you guys also had some pretty big investments from names we'd all recognize like Chime and SoFi and Public.com and Ripple and so forth. Why do you think these companies that build these products that would presumably be competitors to some of the other investments that you guys are making would be interested in making these investments alongside you guys. So yeah, I do have to slightly correct there. So we have a lot of equity in these businesses. Part of our business model for fiat growth, our consultancy is we basically get a retainer for our services. We get advisor equity in a lot of businesses. And then we Mm -hmm. also ask for the right to invest. So those companies you just listed weren't actually investors in our fund, but they were companies that worked alongside us at Fiat Growth. We helped them scale. Therefore, they would give us equity in their business. Mm -hmm. On the venture side, we've basically been able to bring in a number of different investors, many of them being past clients of ours on the Fiat Growth side of the business, where these are... Mm -hmm. Founders that have already had Nexit, they're existing founders that, you know, have worked at other very successful businesses mixed with a number of other call like institutions as well as family offices. So our anchor in fund one is actually Invesco, which is a trillion dollar management fund that if you're in the space, you know very well, but they were big believers in what we were building, had invested alongside us on a number of call it larger co-investments that we had done and saw the vision of what we were building from the VC standpoint and and leaned in with us to be a long-term partner. I appreciate you correcting me on that because that's not even like a small correction. That's that's a very big (laughs) difference in the way I was representing it. So I appreciate that. Yeah, no worries. But what types of investments do you expect to make with those funds that have been raised, right? Especially in this new climate we find ourselves in from the venture landscape. Yeah, you know, When we initially founded Fiat Growth, I did it alongside my co-founder, Alex Harris. At the time, he was the head of growth and partnerships at Chime and did that from Series A to Series D. I was doing the same role at a company called Steady, which helps folks in the 1099 world improve their financial health. So basically, as we were kind of building these two different arms up at these respective companies, we were seeing the shift happen in the market. We realized that folks were no longer just building products for the top 10% or even the top 20% of America. But we started seeing products pop up that were built around called the low to middle income communities across the US, or even called the 75% of Americans that don't have $500 in savings in case of an emergency. So as we were seeing this pop up on the fiat growth side of the business, as we were building it up, we really started building organically building our thesis for fiat ventures. 
And we wanted to make it so that we were focusing on lowering the access barrier for financial products that would help build the financial health and the generational wealth for the future generations to come, as well as a hyper-focus on the low to middle income communities across America. So again, thinking about so many of these Americans not having $500 in savings in case of an emergency really made us think about it in three different ways. How can we help you earn money? How can we help you save money? And how can we make it so you can invest money that is going to over time compound and give you the ability to find your way out of this situation for future generations? So as we kind of think about the financial landscape, we really spend a lot of time on diving into the low to middle income communities, lowering the access barrier for financial products and making sure they have the access that historically they didn't have the access to. And in turn, what that typically reflects is a very diverse set of different founders and companies that we're investing in. Because a lot of times you need to come from the environment that we are trying to invest and design around to truly understand what the issue is and how to better solve it. How many people, I know you don't know the answer to this, so this is rhetorical, but how many people working at some of the larger, better known fintech firms that have even become sort of legacy companies at this point because they've been in existence so long have never experienced an overdraft fee? Right. So that $35 fee that could be the difference between my kids eat today or they don't. Sometimes the people designing some of these tools or historically, the folks who have designed some of these tools have never even had experience with something as simple as that. Right. Or you mentioned 75,000 Americans that don't have $500 in their checking account. The way that I was thinking about it, I've seen a similar statistic, but basically that same 75,000 people are two missed paychecks away from homelessness. Yep. And so if you just think about it through that context, right? I'd be lying if I say I don't know exactly when payday is, but that's also because I'm like super anal retentive around all things money. Yeah. yeah. But uh, like I'm married to someone, for example, who doesn't know exactly which day payday is, which you may not realize is a luxury. But if you're a person who's two missed paychecks away from homelessness, you know exactly when payday is and you're itching and scratching your way to the next one. It's a good call out. I would say, I think a lot of people have actually experienced an overdraft fee, but I think we have to think about how did that impact them? Mm. Was that because they were so privileged that they didn't have to worry about that? And they knew that like, if an overdraft fee came, their parents would take care of it. Mm. Was that overdraft fee just a mistake, but not a big deal? Or was that overdraft fee the difference between y'all being able to eat breakfast every day of that month or not? And so yeah, a lot of times these events they have a different impact on the individual that it's touching. And there's a certain amount of exposure and understanding you need to have around all of the different socioeconomic classes to be able to kind of break down how that event affects different types of people. I brought that up because I think about how it can help bring, you know, underbanked communities into the fold, right? And so help solve some serious problems with the way our legacy banking system functions today. But I'm also concerned about like the lack of people who come from and represent those communities being part of the teams creating those technologies, right? And so that's why I brought up the point of like folks not having the experience with the overdraft because it's one of the more common headaches. Yep. But I also take your point that sometimes folks' parents are in position to cover it for them, so they still have no idea that it actually exists. But my question after all that windup, I guess, is like to what extent would you say that digital transformation has actually enabled greater access to financial services for marginalized communities, not just here in the States, but also around the world, because you see this impacted on a global level, not just, you know, in Silicon Valley, for example. 
Totally. And it's had a massive impact. I also think COVID is really brought into hyper growth because it forced so many people to not seek the kind of physical engagement with a bank teller or a physical Mm -hmm. brick and mortar financial institution and really push everyone on a mobile, push everyone into digital. Yeah. There's always the risk is, is to your point, you know, a lot of folks in tech still very underrepresented by people of color Mm -hmm. and a lot of folks still looking to make really, really big decisions that are going to impact this like low to middle income sector of the world based on a emotionally driven decision or a hypothesis that's not backed by data. I think a lot of times, you know, there's this qualitative and quantitative discussion that always needs to happen. And if it's not quantitative, Mm -hmm. you got to make sure that the people having these qualitative discussions are folks that are representing the communities that are going to be most impacted. So me being a marketer, everything we do at Fiat Growth and from a marketing standpoint, we have to make sure that we're not just making emotional decisions, but we're truly understanding the data and what everyone's telling us. And I'll tell you this, like I grew up in the inner city of Oakland, of East Oakland, and Mm -hmm. data to this day will give me so much education around, you know, I understand edge cases because I grew up in this space, but understanding the big trends that are going to make the biggest impact on how these communities are engaging with finance, data is still king here. Yeah. Have you seen any significant steps that have been taken over the past, you know, call it five years, let's just say, not even just COVID, but in recent history to encourage more people from underrepresented groups, like you mentioned, to enter the field of fintech? Yeah, you know, even kind of going back to what you were talking about earlier, of this like overdraft fee, like Chime itself, Mm -hmm. the bank, like they led this whole charge of getting rid of overdraft fees, knowing that the overdraft fee space was a multi-billion dollar kind of like banking secret that no one knew about. And of course, who they were impacting the most? They were impacting the people that were the most, you know, underserved, the folks that were living paycheck to paycheck. And I mean, my co-founder, Alex Harris, continually tells that story sometimes of that wasn't a, I woke up at two in the morning and had this aha moment. That was a, hold on, like we're seeing something here. Let's run 10 more tests in these like very small Mm -hmm controlled cohorts to understand if this is an actual problem. We understand it. We understand it. We understand it. Yes, these are still companies that are venture backed that are still trying to drive revenue. But that turned into be one of the most impactful features of their product. It also started to become one of the most kind of like valuable from like a revenue driving standpoint, parts of their product because it was a great acquisition tool, but it was also serving the community really well. So they didn't have to be nervous about that overdraft fee significantly impacting their weekly lifestyle. Also, by being digital, you bring more folks into the fold because one thing that gets missed, I think I've worked inside of banks for quite some time, so I've noticed this personally. I work in some of the higher end, more suburban areas around the D.C. area. And so bank branches are plentiful. But in some places, because banks don't want to even have to staff locations in certain neighborhoods, There's not a bank branch anywhere close to you the same way, you know, sometimes we talk about a food desert. Exactly. There's a banking desert in communities. And so by being digital first, companies like Chime allow folks that are unbanked altogether, not even underbanked, but they don't even have an account anywhere altogether to be able to come into the banking system for the first time in a lot of ways and skip over the check cashing place and those other kind of more predatory places that we see a lot of your income goes to just for you to have access to your own money. 
It's interesting you say that, you know, one trend that we're seeing quite a bit here is a lot of affinity-based fintechs popping up. And when I say affinity Hmm. banks, I mean, you know, a company like Greenwood, which is a bank for the African-American community, Mm -hmm. or Daylight, Mm -hmm. a bank for the LGBTQ plus community. Mm -hmm. We invested in a company called Sego Seguros, which is an insurance company built for the Hispanic community. But historically, the Hispanic community would only go to brick and mortar insurance spots to get their insurance because, of course, one, the language barrier, and two, Mm -hmm. that's just where the trust was because their parents, parents, parents went out and actually got their insurance there. So there's this huge opportunity for a lot of like really interesting edge cases to continue to evolve where Mm -hmm. we talk about these bank deserts also there's a trust barrier there of banks because of what they've done historically and how Mm -hmm. their entire language is built for a very specific subset of America in the world. Mm. So seeing these different financial institutions pop up that are not only serving you in the way that, you know, other banks are serving you, but speaking in your language, building rewards platforms around your specific way of life. Like I joke about it with the Greenwood guys all the time. I'm a black man. I get my hair cut like once every two weeks. Mm-hmm. A lot of other folks will just do it once a month, once every 12 weeks. Why can I get rewards for getting my hair cut versus, you know, just jumping on the next flight? But there's very different edge cases. The only downside to that is Killer Mike's going to try and force you to come use his barbershop in Atlanta. That <laughs> like that. So careful what you wish for. <laughs> Fair enough. But I take your point. Fair enough. Yeah. There's an interesting infrastructure opportunity where you can shift a lot of age-old systems and make it very specific to speak in the language that you live in. Mm -hmm. And like that is a transition that I think is going to happen, not only from a generational standpoint, also from a socioeconomic standpoint, and just like a environment standpoint. You're a product of your environment. Let's build products around that environment. So I want to go back to something else I heard you say, because I want to make sure I don't lose it in my limited memory space here as we're having this conversation. Because it sounds like you guys take a little bit of a different approach with the companies you partner with. You use the phrase a couple of times, earn the right to invest in your company, Mm -hmm. which is a completely crazy sounding lexicon for a VC to use talking about any of the firms they invest in, right? Like, generally VCs come in and they're like, if we get to you and manage to helicopter some money onto your company, like we have done almost what we consider to be a community service. And I know you can't necessarily confirm or deny, right? Considering what you do for a living and you need these doors to be open. So I won't ask you to, I'll just say on the record, because I don't have to worry about anybody getting offended (laughs) by me saying it, the 12 people that listen to this show anyway. Um, I'm really thinking about that lens that you use to treat your entrepreneurs, right? And to think about it being a privilege to invest in those companies that you come alongside. Why is that the ethos that you guys have adopted as far as investors? And have you seen it make any significant impact in the way that your portfolio companies perform versus anybody else following a little bit more traditional model? Totally. So let me just make sure I break down the model that we have and kind of how Fiat Ventures was born out of Fiat growth. I think it will add a lot of context. Mm -hmm. And then I'll answer the question directly. So Fiat growth, our growth consultancy was founded a little over five years ago by myself and my Mm co-founder. Today, we're 32 employees. Our business is, again, it is growth marketing or I'm sorry, it's our growth consultancy where we help companies scale. So we're not just the strategy around marketing, but we're also the execution. Mm -hmm. From day one, we had a fairly unique model. 
We got a retainer for our services. We got equity in these businesses and we asked for the right to invest. We got that under contract. When we first started, we didn't have the the money to invest, but we knew if we were going to help these companies scale, we wanted to have the opportunity to invest in them at a future state. So two years ago, I was able to bring on Marcos Fernandez, who was previous SoFi, previous Ripple, close family friend of mine. And we always talked about business. And he said, you know, one thing I want to do in my career is have my own venture fund. And I said, hey, we've worked with over 80 different companies at this point. When we were having these conversations, I said, you should come on board. We have these rights to invest in some of fintech's sexiest companies. Let's start our venture fund. Yeah. So we founded Fiat Ventures. Fiat Ventures is a separate entity to Fiat Growth. And over the span of around 16 months, we were able to raise our $25 million debut fund. So one thing Fiat Growth does in connection with Fiat Ventures is Fiat Growth is one of the best due diligence arms in the business because mm. we mm-hmm. get to work with our clients with these companies prior to investment. Yep. So basically we work with them three months or longer and we're seeing the signs of magic. We lean in and say, hey, we would love to invest in your next next round. We already have the right to invest under contract, but we'd love to do this. And so we're actually working with these companies to help them scale. What that also does is it makes us some of the smartest VCs because we get to learn about the space by actually doing. Mm-hmm. So getting back over to Fiat Ventures here, Around 65% of our investments are companies that we have worked with previously at Fiat Growth prior to investment. The rest of the investments are trends that we see in the space and also companies that are very close to us. So our big thing is, is yes, we have it under contract, but the last thing we want to do is force our money in. We've never been in a situation where we haven't said, hey, we want to invest in you and they haven't been thrilled for that because in the market, we are very smart money. We're strategic money. We're larger than just a check. Or someone that can come in and help improve the bottom line of the business, which is how do we drive more users? How do we drive more clients? How do we drive more revenue to the business? Yeah. And we can offer that where, as we know, his like typical or not typical, but historically the venture capital landscape is I'm a VC. I'm going to take you to lunch. I'm going to look at a super well manicured data room. You're going to pitch me on why you're the best company on earth. And then I'm going to make a decision if I want to invest in you. We already have all the deep understanding from a diligence standpoint of is what that founder saying? Is it right? Is it true? Is that the right thing to be doing or not? And then we can make a call on how we want to engage with that individual. Yeah. To your point too, about that whole investor lunch scenario, I'm probably going to read two of the pages in the deck and I'm going to make my decision based on something that doesn't even appear in the deck anyway. And so the due diligence process, as we learned with like the collapse of FTX, for example, totally. isn't as diligent as we might want to present ourselves as being. And sometimes it's just a matter of having access to the opportunity to invest or access to deal flow, I guess, to use the proper term for it, and less about our genius as investors. It's just, you know, a time and place and having the cash to throw around kind of thing. But I'm thinking about something else as you were just talking. One of the reasons that I wanted to have you on is, you know, this is, as we like to say, the place where tech employees come to get smarter about their money, right? And so I'm thinking about like your viewpoint and your sort of perch that you sit on, if you will, to have visibility over the entire fintech landscape. If you were an entrepreneur interested in scaling a fintech startup in this current climate, knowing what you know of how overly saturated certain parts of the market are, how under-penetrated other parts of the market are, what would you be focused on creating today? It's a good question. I think one thing overarching that I think is just a misconception is a lot of folks 
feel right now that fintech is plateaued or it's dead or it's dying, I couldn't disagree more. Yeah. I believe fintech is just getting started. I think there are some incredible trends right now that if I was looking for like a founder to start a business, I would be all over. I mean, diving into those, like I think embedded solutions are a really interesting space to jump into. I believe that fintech is going to be so deeply embedded in our lives, it's going to feel almost invisible. It's going to be embedded Mm. in every single product. And I believe that there's a huge opportunity to build some of the infrastructure and going to some of these larger companies and saying, hey, let's fold my product into your product. I think ownership is shifting. I think that, again, like this low to middle income community, there's been a huge gate and a barrier for them to be able to invest in the stock market, invest in real estate. I believe that fractional investing is a really interesting space that still needs to be explored. How can I own a part Mm. of a property instead of an entire property so I can Mm. learn how I want to invest, but I can also get ownership without having to go spend a million dollars to do that, especially when I don't have a million dollars. Yeah. Or I'm not an accredited investor. Great call out. I'm not accredited investor. You know, the biggest thing that I spend a lot of time on right now is the creator economy and the future of work. I believe that money is getting younger. I believe that Gen Z is going to be highly impacted in this like embedded world that I was talking about. It almost feeling second nature to every product you touch. But 14-year-olds are selling shoes on StockX. 13-year-olds are selling socks on Etsy and they're creating their own socks. 17-year-olds signing NIL deals to go play basketball somewhere. You got it. Like this world where like our parents and our parents' parents used to just open up a lemonade stand or just like do a paper route, it's dead. Yeah. And these kids are learning how to earn money. Therefore, we all know when we start earning money, we start understanding money and mm-hmm. becoming literate in, in how we manage that money. So that relationship's getting younger. And I believe that because of that, all these different fintech opportunities are going to pop up. Kids still got to pay taxes on their income. You know, folks that are of age are going to need to go get healthcare benefits. Lots of different things are going to start happening here where there's going to be a whole different financial infrastructure with the messaging being built around a different age demographic, a different type of consumer. And I believe that being a massive opportunity in the space. So you're mentioning how sort of ubiquitous all of a sudden fintech feels in our lives and every single transaction we have that has a dollar sign attached to it. I'm paraphrasing your words a little bit, but every single transaction we have that has a dollar sign attached to it, there's some level of fintech involved in it. And so I'm going to take it a little bit of a step further and throw a few buzzwords at you and see if you have an opinion just yet on a couple of these things. But I'm thinking as you're talking about like generative AI, right? The whole chat GPT, open AI sudden awakening that all of a sudden the majority of the world that doesn't live in Seattle or San Francisco is suddenly understanding that AI can be used for things other than just, Alexa, can you tell me what time it is, right? Yep. And so as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about the fact that like a generative AI tool, there's room for that to also be coupled with the way we interact with our money. Massively. Do you have any ideas or have you seen anything going in that direction of, of what we might expect? Yeah. So I think generative AI is is a really interesting space like chat GPT right now. It can be used for a million different things. I'm sure you've you've been on LinkedIn and you've seen the little carousels of being like 27 different use cases for chat GPT. Yeah. You know, from a fintech standpoint, the one that I think is most obvious and there's a million more is customer service. Mm. Anyone that has any distrust with a bank, 
wants to speak with someone in person. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they want to do that is because they initially tried to talk to the bot and the bot mm -hmm. gave them a ton of answers that were, you know, based on a script that didn't provide them the answers they need. I believe there's a world and I'll talk about this like money is getting younger trend again, where a 14 year old says, I just made my first $200 on Etsy. Mm -hmm. I don't have a bank account. What should I do? And mm -hmm. a generative AI type of tool could legitimately walk them through that entire process in a very nuanced, a very detailed way, very specific to who that person is. I also believe that through different products, you get so much information about the user. Plugging that information into uh, generative AI so when that 14-year-old is asking that question, they already have a baseline understanding of who that person is and then can answer it based on already knowing you. Mm -hmm. So I believe it can get deeper and deeper and deeper, but really incredible onboarding flows for some of these products where they're saying like they know that you have a kid and they know that you live in a suburban neighborhood and they know X, Y, Z that could be a jump start to them already understanding you on a really deep level. And then the, the conversation starting based on them already knowing that information versus you having to restart a brand new conversation and relationship every time you engage with the customer service individual. So I see customer service being massive and it also being something that can save so much time as people are like moving through just any financial institution, any financial product. There's a million other applications there, but that's one that I see as a really interesting one to start. One that I would love to see modified at some point in the near future, you brought up the idea of insurance in the past. And no direct disrespect to anybody who I know or don't know personally who operates in the insurance space, but that's one of the places that I still feel has a lot more ground to cover as far as pairing people with folks who are not just selling a product but also folks who are providing a service that's designed to help you find the right solution. And so not necessarily how much insurance can you afford, and now I'm going to go find a solution based on the amount you told me you're willing to spend, but instead, how much insurance do you actually need? And then we're going to design a solution around that, the inverse. I think a place like a generative AI, like you're talking about, that knows a little bit about you as you're coming in the door or can learn about you really quickly can provide some guidance that gets you to the right solution, which helps you avoid being oversold or upsold on the thing that doesn't actually benefit you, which, you know, frankly, kind of kills the insurance industry in the way we traditionally know it. But also, I would say for the better in a lot of instances, because it helps get people off the sidelines and helps them actually start to take action to ensure the things that they need to be insuring. Like, there's a lot of people out there, as I'm sure you know, that don't have proper life insurance coverage or maybe not any insurance coverage at all. And a lot of those people you'll talk to, it's not because they have a lack of education or a lack of common sense or anything else. It's that the whole process of dealing with insurance and insurance agents and everything else is either intimidating or has put them off for one reason or another. I 100% agree. And I would even say, just to add on to life insurance in particular, it's such a personal type of insurance. Mm -hmm. People are solving for that like life insurance for many things. If you're very privileged, you're doing it to make it so your family never has to worry again if you were to pass away. But the mm -hmm. majority of America, the majority of the world is doing it so, again, 
they can pay for the next next six months of rent and pay for the funeral and just make it so their family doesn't go under or become homeless. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. those like very personal types of edge cases are ones that need to be held in a very thoughtful way. So I think to your point, I think generative AI could play a massive role there, but there's also like a lot of margin for error there because it's such a delicate conversation. But I do see that being a massive opportunity as well. Yeah. So my next question, similar situation, as vague as you want it to be, but separate and apart from the generative AI conversation, or maybe even interwoven in there, I'm thinking about the role that a tool like the blockchain could play in the near future and improving the way we interact with our money today. And then keep in mind, I'm saying the blockchain and not crypto, because just as an FYI, you're talking to a person who's what I consider a crypto skeptic, but a blockchain enthusiast. Yeah. And so, you know, from what you're seeing, the conversations you've been having, are there places where you've seen that the blockchain is already primed to improve how we interact with our money and technology? Yeah, you know, right now, you know, when I think about blockchain, I really think from a picks and shovel standpoint, I think mm-hmm. from the standpoint of, I think there's a lot of infrastructure that can help us be so much more real time. So from my standpoint, I think about it from an efficiency space. How can we make it so we can move quicker, we can be more agile, and folks are feeling like when a decision's made, a decision's made instantly. We spend a lot in the blockchain space. I definitely say we have taken a small little beat on it just because of making sure that we are... And again, Marcos Fernandez, who's our managing partner at Fiat Ventures, he came from Ripple and was our head of business, international business development for over three years. He knows this space like the back of my hand. And I'm so thankful because as you know, the hardest part of this space is the diligence aspect mm-hmm. um, because there are a lot of really incredible ideas that are bigger than you know we see on any front. However, we have to make it so we're digesting and diligencing these ideas the right way. So I'm a big believer in how it can be embedded into tools I think we're still in a space where we're trying to figure out if we like blockchain as a feature of an existing product or the product, because we're just making sure that we're understanding the diligence on every front. So do you think the opportunity for the folks building in the fintech space today is to build the thing that becomes the dominant player? So as an example, I built PayPal, PayPal you know, made its way to being one of the more dominant players in peer-to-peer payments? Mm -hmm. Or am I building for the purpose of being acquired by one of the incumbents, like a J.P. Morgan Chase, for example, who seems to be pretty interested in, you know, different digital tools that are being built, but doesn't have as much interest in going and building them themselves? Which direction do you think is the more probable direction for anyone building in the space right now? Yeah, anyone we're investing in is is looking to build a vertical ecosystem defining product that's going to be a multi-billion dollar business that will change the future of fintech. Mm-hmm. Yes, along the way, sometimes that turns into an acquisition of some kind, but never is our goal as we think about investing to invest in a business that we believe has the ability to be acquired by these top five companies. Got it. We're not looking to invest in companies that are trying to build solutions for existing larger companies. We're looking for category-defining opportunities that we believe are going to be owners of the space over the next 10 to 20 years. That is very much like the power law in us. Like We want to make it so 
multi-billion dollar businesses are being built out of the founders that are building industry defining ideas. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, listen, it happens all the time. You know, there's some times where we're working with a founder that might've come from a background where, you know, they look at us and say, listen, this is a hundred million dollar liquidity event for me. I have to take it. And, you know, we, by all means, understand it. But our hope is, is to be investing in the companies that are looking for something far beyond an acquisition, but looking to make an impact greater than they can ever imagine. So I asked you my initial set of questions from the perspective of an entrepreneur who's looking to build in the space today. Yeah. But I'll ask a little bit differently. And I understand that you don't want to give too much away because I could be asking you to give the playbook to your competitors here. But if I'm looking to invest, I'm not necessarily even a VC, maybe an angel, or I'm just connected to a bunch of people who happen to be in tech asking for a quote unquote friend, any particular niche within the fintech space that you would be paying more attention to than the other. So we talked about like insure tech, mortgage tech, you know, banking, payments, lending, any of those kind of things where you see sort of a trend emerging, any place I should be paying more attention with my dollars than the rest right now? You know, I definitely think like the blending of healthcare and fintech is a really interesting space. Hmm. Uh, recently, there's been a lot of legislature passed where Healthcare data is just public now. Mm -hmm. And I think historically, based on how you even see bills, how you like pay for insurance, a lot of it's been very much of a, a big question mark and a mystery. And I believe there's going to be a huge opportunity for demystifying the healthcare space for the average consumer. Mm -hmm. And I believe that, you know, fintech tools, fintech products are very much going to be embedded in that or the actual product itself to help folks better understand how they are engaging with their healthcare plans and their bills, how they're choosing those products, how they're paying for those products and so forth. So I think there's a B2B opportunity there. I think there's a B2C opportunity there. I think there's a B2B2C opportunity there to disrupt it a bit. So we're spending a lot of time in that space just because historically it's been, they both kind of been sitting on their own islands. And I think there's going to be a melding of the two over the next five to 10 years here. I'm glad I asked. That's a direction I had not considered one bit. In all of the different places that I've looked for, you know, opportunities to to invest even at the lower level. Totally. So my last question probably has nothing to do with your shop at all. And so you can kind of take that hat off for a second and relax your shoulders a little bit as you think about this one. But let's say for a moment you never found your passion for either marketing or investing in fintech specifically. So you had to find a different way to occupy your days but money was not a factor in your decision-making at all. What do you think you'd be doing right now? Really good question. I always like jokingly say to my partner, they're like, what's the one job that you'd like leave Fiat for tomorrow? I really love design and innovation. And there's some brands that I've always been a huge lover of. Nike being one of them. Of course. <laughs> and their ability to build both a feeling and a product that to me is next to none. So one would be, head of innovation at Nike. Okay. The other one is I've always just loved building and I've loved building the vision. I used to always really want to be an architect. And so I probably would be an architect of really beautiful residential homes. And there's something very serene. I chose the path of controlled chaos in my life, which I love. Yeah, I absolutely love it. I love bringing order to chaos. But there's always been this like minimalist quality that I always long for around how can I design things in the most simple way possible? And 
being hands-on with a physical product with call it architecture and homes or, you know, shoes and clothes within Nike has always been something that I always dream of. Maybe I can do both. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, like, I'm sure there's room for you to, like, design tiny homes, like, on your land that you purchased in Portland somewhere so you can be close to oh, campus yeah. and design. So, you know, there's room to architect this for sure. Well, I will fold stuff in there for sure. There's a million other, like, huge, massive dreams, but you just talk about, like, the thing that I just know if I could just, like, build in the middle of nowhere, mm -hmm. it would be special. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. Like, this has been great, Drew, like, honestly. So definitely thank you for making the time to do this. Of course. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or Fiat after this goes live? Yeah. So if you want to learn more about Fiat, fiatgrowth.com. Also, our venture fund is fiat.vc. If you want to connect with me personally, you can always hit me up on Twitter at Drew Baylor. And then also on LinkedIn, which I'm very active. Just look up Drew Glover. I'm a co-founder of Fiat Growth and a founding partner of Fiat Ventures. Awesome. Well, listeners, this has been yet another episode of the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe via your favorite podcasting platform. That way, you'll be alerted immediately each week when a new episode is released. Maybe even consider sharing the link to this week's episode with your friends and colleagues. And if you really liked what you heard, be sure to leave a review. This will help make sure that more people just like you are able to find the show organically. You may connect with me, your host, on social at Malcolm on Money, and feel free to send us any questions, comments, or kudos to podcast at tech-money.com. That email address again is podcast at tech-money.com. And as always, we hope that this episode of the Tech Money Podcast has helped to make you just a little bit smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out tech-money.com. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is tech-money.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing, and the sound controls powered by Tech Money LLC. Thank you for listening. Information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on 
every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Dot com.